Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon I delivered on the book of Acts. I hope you enjoy. Your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 2, page 771. I believe we decided earlier that's the page number in your pew Bibles. Page 771. I'm going to begin, while you turn in the book of Acts, I'm going to begin in the Old Testament story, kind of bringing us up to speed in terms of what's going on. You might have been wondering why we read the Tower of Babel story in Genesis chapter 11 a little earlier. Well, the story of the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1. God creates the universe. And in creating the universe, he creates Adam and Eve in his own image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Humanity was created to dwell in God's presence. Uh, the, the, the biblical story is that God brings Adam and Eve into his garden presence, what we, the place called Eden. And there they're going to dwell in God's glorious presence and they're going to make God known to all of creation. Humanity was one. In his image he made them. And the reason why humanity was one is because God is one. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the Shema. It's, it's perhaps the most famous verse in the Old Testament amongst all Jewish people. They shout it every single day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And humanity was made to be one, to reflect God's glory and God's image in His presence. We know the story, many of us, the book, in, in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve decide to sin. They choose to follow themselves as God, make their own rules and not follow the Lord. And so death enters the story. God expels Adam and Eve from the garden. As you go through Genesis 4, 5, and 6, and 7, the story it gets worse and worse and worse. So much so that God wipes out humanity and, and wipes out creation with a flood. But he saves Noah. And he saves a remnant. But again, after Noah gets off the ark, it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And in Genesis chapter 11, they build a tower. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them as long as they work together. Humanity was supposed to fill the earth and make God known throughout all of creation. Instead, they were, they were defying God and remaining as one and, and building a tower. And a tower where they could reach into the heavens and become gods themselves. So God confuses their languages and forces them all to scatter throughout the whole earth. God doesn't abandon humanity, however. God calls a man named Abraham, the father of the Jewish people in Genesis 12. Abraham is going to be the means to which God's going to end up ultimately blessing all the nations. There's going to be this redemption. that God's going to save this, this, this ruined creation of his. As we fast forward all the way to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus enters the story. Uh, as the child of Mary, as, as the true human, yet conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's divine, yet human. And he announced that good news has come for all the nations. Now, that announcement of good news for the nations was, was indeed great news, except for those who didn't want the good news to go to the nations. Many within Israel had come to, con come to conclude that, that God's promise to Abraham was for them. And they had failed to recognize that God's promise to Abraham for them was so that they might be a blessing to the nations. 
They thought the nations were the enemy. Understandably so. If you look at Jewish history, for 2,000 years, the, the, the Egyptians had enslaved them, the Babylonians had persecuted them, the Assyrians had persecuted them, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Oppression after oppression after oppression. For 2,000 years, they're the enemy. And Jesus says, no. They're the people that we're supposed to proclaim the gospel to. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he has shown us what it looks like to be the true people of God. This is what Israel was called to do and to be. And we read the Gospels to find out the story. Through Jesus' death, he suffered the punishment that was upon us. And he suffered that for our sins. Through his resurrection, he defeats death and brings about the new creation. And then he sends the Holy Spirit. And in sending the Holy Spirit, we are now the one family of God. And a part of that, that new creation that Jesus is bringing about. God dwells within us. The essence of creation and new creation is that God was going to dwell among His humanity, among His creation. He was going to be made known through humanity to the creation as He dwelt with them. And when He expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, God's presence was lost. But in Jesus... And in the coming of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God is restored among His people. And now we, the new creation, are to take that commission to the nations. I can, I can stop. I'm done. Okay. Let's go a little further. I mean, that's the gospel. There it is. That's the gospel. Acts chapter 2 then begins this way. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They all being the disciples and about 120. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they all asked, they asked, Are, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Verse 9, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Acts 2 begins with when the day of Pentecost had come. Pentecost is one of the major feasts in the Jewish religion of the Old Testament. Uh, the Feast of Pentecost was to commemorate the coming of the Holy Spirit upon Moses and the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. It means 50, Pentecost, and it represents the 50 days after Passover. It commemorates again the coming of the Holy Spirit and the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. It's a the coming of the Spirit, however, in the book of Acts is a fulfillment of the coming of the Spirit promised throughout the Old Testament. Let's look at a few verses. It's the fulfillment of the coming of the Spirit. Isaiah 44, verse 3. I will pour, forth, pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. I will take you out of the nations... I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. And I'll remove from you uh, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and move you to follow my decrees. 
and to be careful to keep my laws. Ezekiel 39, verse 29. I will no longer hide my face from you, for I will, I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the Sovereign Lord. The coming of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is the fulfillment of God's promises throughout his prophets throughout the Old Testament. Acts 2 again, now verses 1 through 3. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered in one place. Suddenly, like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. It might be, it's pretty apparent there are two signs that accompany the presence of the Holy Spirit or the presence of God, and it's wind and fire. Wind and fire. And if you were to do a study of wind throughout the scriptures, and we saw a little bit in the video earlier, the word wind in Hebrew is the same word for spirit, which is the same word for breath. It's actually the same word in Greek and in Hebrew. The Greek word pneuma, or pneuma, and the, and, and the Hebrew word ruach, um, means breath or wind or spirit. Uh, it's associated with God's presence from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. We see God's Spirit from the very, very beginning of creation. Adam became alive in Genesis 2 when God breathed on him. Genesis 2, 7 and 8. And Adam became a living being because God breathed. God gave him the Spirit, the wind. We see in the book of Exodus the, the wind of God, the breath of God, the Spirit of God separates the waters and the, and the Israelites walk through the Red Sea. God's Spirit has been active throughout the Old Testament and the, the violent wind, the rushing wind coming in the house is, is to remind the, the, the people of God that this is the presence of God. Fire, of course, is also associated with God's presence. Most notably, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush in the book of Exodus. There's a pillar of fire that hovered over the tabernacle as the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Every night there's a pillar of fire symbolizing God's presence over the tabernacle. The book of Ezekiel describes God's chariot throne with wheels that are ablaze with fire. Fire symbolizes judgment and purification and refinement. Genesis, uh, uh, Acts chapter 2, now the whole house was filled. Just like the whole earth was supposed to be filled with God's presence, now the whole house is filled. Verse 5 of, of Acts 2, now that we're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Because they each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? They began to speak in what's often referred to as tongues, and we'll address the issue of tongues as we move throughout the book of Acts and into the New Testament. But the key event that's happening here, and the key element of, of, of Luke's description, and Luke is the author of the book of Acts, is that what happened at the Tower of Babel is being reversed. At the Tower of Babel, God confuses their language. They all spoke with one language, and now God says, no, you're going to speak with many languages, and force them to disperse. And now, in the book of Acts, God's gathering them together from all the nations and giving them one language. At Babel, they conf God confused their languages because they were trying to make a name for themselves by building a temple or a city for themselves. At Pentecost, God gives them one language so that they can build the temple city for the Lord and proclaim the Lord's name. This is part of God's new cre recreation. Acts 2 then uh, tells us the people where they came from. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. 
a map will illustrate what's, what actually Luke is describing. What, what we see if we read the if we read Acts two nine through eleven, we're going to see he's describing peoples coming from first from the east under Judea, then from the uh, so uh, Parthians, Medes, Mesopotamians, and Judeans. All right, then uh, up to the north, Pontus, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, Phrygia, and, and Pamphylia. Then he goes to the east with Egypt and, and Cyrene and, and, and Rome, and then he goes to the south. People coming from all directions, first the east, then the west, uh, then the north, then the west, and then the south. The, from, from, from the whole earth, of course, which is you know, obviously exaggerative uh, to, to make a point. And that is, just as the Jews were scattered, just as the nations were scattered to fill the whole earth, so now the nations are being brought back to God's people and to God's presence. It's God's tabernacling, templing presence that is indwelling the disciples. I would say the key then is this, the coming of the Spirit and the ability to communicate across language barriers signifies the beginning of the new creation and that God is restoring his people into one new family of God. Jesus says, who are my mother and my brother and my sisters but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven? And we're made in this one new family of God. All right, now, I, I would suggest that there's two things that we can learn from, from the, the story here at Pentecost. The first thing that we learn from the story at Pentecost is unity. Unity, the, the need for them to be one. Genesis chapter 11 in the, at the Tower of Babel episode, it says, Nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them as long as they work together. Now, that's a bad note, right? Uh, They're doing evil there, but just take that verse now and look at it in the the New Testament context. Nothing we plan to do will be impossible as long as we work together, unified by the Spirit. If oneness is the fundamental essence of God's being, then oneness should characterize God's people. Why is is there this great stress in the New Testament on on, on unity? Look at these verses. And and I only picked out a few because there's dozens of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, to the Corinthians, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. You'd think that Paul and Peter would kind of like know better. Like, dude, that's impossible. There'd be no divisions among us. Be perfectly united in mind and thought. Not everyone's going to think like me. That's not going to be possible, therefore. Why is this so important? I alluded to this earlier in the service. John 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, referring to his disciples, but I'm praying also for all those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Why is the church to be one? Because God is one. It's, it's his nature, it's who he is, and we are to reflect God to the creation, and in doing so, the world may believe that you have sent me. God's witness is at stake. I was re- meeting with someone just recently and he was telling me a story that became a Christian in, I think, a teenage years. And he didn't really know anything about Christianity, but he heard about Jesus, accepted Jesus, and he thought, okay, I'm going to go to church this weekend. I'm, I'm going to go to church. 
and, and he had no idea. So he, he, he opened up the yellow pages, and if you don't know what that is, it's a little thing that we used to get in the mail, and it, it tells us phone numbers and addresses, and there's a yellow part that are advertisements and stuff like that. Don't worry about it, kids. It's, it's meaningless. All right. Um, anyways, he opened up the yellow pages to find out wh wh where the nearest church was. And he went, oh, there's Presbyterians, there's Catholics, there's Methodists, there's Baptists, there's, right? And, and he didn't know where to start. He thought the church was one. There's only one church, so I'll just go to the one that's... And all of a sudden he realizes, wait, what's going on? There are about 40,000 denominations in Christianity today. Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. And then all the divisions within them. The Catholics are not perfectly unified. To some extent they are. The Orthodox have Greek and Russian and, and, and you've heard the, the, the debates that are going on between the Ukrainian and the, and the Russian uh, you know, Orthodox churches and there's Greek Orthodox and there's Coptics and the Protestants of course have Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists and on and on and on and on and on. Imagine what the church could do if it were unified. Imagine the impact of our witness in the world. Imagine if we, if we pulled all of our resources together and mobilized them together. I was, at a, uh, I was a, attending a, a, a conference a number of years ago, a leadership conference, uh, and a Harvard professor, I don't believe the guy was a Christian, was brought in to speak. Um, and the Harvard professor uh, said, what I don't get about you guys is, is why you're all trying to do the same thing. He says, why don't you stop and recognize that this group over here is really good at this and just let them do that. And then you guys over here that are really good at this, you guys do that part. But why do you have to compete with each other? Because when you compete with each other, then these guys who aren't quite as good, they're not going to do as good a job anyways. And then they're wasting resources that these guys could utilize far more effectively. And it's true. If the church were unified... We could pool our resources and our time and our talents together and we could be far more effective for the kingdom of God. And that's what it's all about. It's about the growth of the kingdom of God. It's not about the growth of, of our community or that community or that community. It's about God's kingdom flourishing. There's a story I read recently about six months ago or whatever about a pastor who was praying for a city. And he was praying, God, oh dear God, bring revival to my city. Dear God, bring revival to my city. Dear God, bring revival to my city. And God finally answered him six months later and he says, okay, great. But does it have to be in your church? And he realized, I wasn't praying for revival in my city. I was praying for my church. I wanted it in my building. I wanted it here. And he realized, oh God, bring revival to my city. This is not unnatural, by the way, the, the divisions and the strife. All you have to do is go back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. John the Baptist's disciples were grumbling. John 3, they came to John, John the Baptist, and his disciples, and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you, being Jesus, by the way, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. It's like, yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, amen, right? John, John the Baptist's disciples were, were grumbling because it wasn't happening here. There's a common topic throughout the New Testament. I already referred to you, 1 Corinthians 1.10. The second verse on that, on that screen now is Ephesians 4, verse 3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
And the fourth one, Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. So the question then becomes this. Why does the New Testament stress unity so much? Why, why is unity so significant in the New Testament? And the answer is because God knows how hard it is. God knows it's hard. If you read the Old Testament, by the way, there's very little stress on unity. There's no, hey guys, be like-minded. Hey guys, be one. Because it was easy. In the Old Testament, they were all Israelites. They were all Jewish. They all dressed the same way, wore the same clothes. They all ate the same foods. They spoke the same language. They practiced the same holidays. They, they did everything. I mean, that's the whole idea of the Old Testament. We're going to be one distinct people group. We'll be so blessed by God that the nations will see how great our God is, and they'll come join us. When that didn't work, God says, guess what? I'm going to create one people, and I'm going to send you out to them. But sending us out to them creates the problem, and the problem is this. We're not all alike. Look at the nations that were gathered at, at Pentecost. They're from all over the Roman world. They're not alike. They don't eat the same foods. They don't dress the same way. They don't talk the same talk. Why is unity stressed throughout the New Testament? Because it's the thing that the churches were struggling to do the most. It, it's not new. It, it, it's universal. If it were easy, there would be no need to keep mentioning it. The plea in the New Testament presupposes, in fact, that we're different. And that's where unity now requires compromise. That's the hard part. Uni requires compromise. I, I was doing some, some study and preparing a little bit uh, this, over the course of this last week for, for this particular message as well. And I was kind of looking at some websites, and it's really interesting. Uh, you know, uni in the church. And you see some of these websites where they're really, really strict. Like, we've got to be unified our way. And it's like, I mean, and they were coming across really strong. It's like, wait a minute. Sometimes... We might have to compromise. And obviously, I'm not talking about compromising on the gospel. But sometimes we refuse to be unified because we have all the, all the truth and those who don't believe what we believe are, are not worthy of being united with us. It's interesting that the most closed-minded groups on the Internet were the loudest ones that proclaiming unity. It was unity on their terms. And that was sad. Now I agree, again, that we can't stress unity so much that, that uh, we just let everything go. You know, and, and one of the things I've encouraged, I, I, I love about the denominational context, and, and if you're not aware, we, we, you know, we're a Presbyterian denomination. What I love about the, about the, the, the context is, is the fact that we, we agree that there, the, there's this boundary here, and, and, and in this boundary is what we agree on. And you can kind of be on this side, of the, uh, this side of, the, of the field or this side of the field, but we still have this commonality. Differences within the boundary, differences within the field. But none, and, and, and the assurance is this, is that I, as an ordained pastor in that denomination, I'm not going to stray out of that. But if, but if you happen to be over here in a slightly different field, it's okay. And it ensures you that, that I'm going to stress this, the, 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 the focal point of, of what we believe but we can disagree here and there and there and be, and be okay. I think we'd all agree that the church has erred seriously on the issue of unity. And I think part of the reason why, of course, is not only our humanity and, and, and our arrogance and things that are just part of human nature. We saw John the Baptist's disciples having trouble with everyone following Jesus. Like, yeah, that's what it's all about, folks. But the fact is also that we have an enemy. We have an enemy. I've shared the gospel numerous times. You know, people come knocking on your doors and they want to talk to you about the Bible and about Jesus. And I'm like, come on in, let's talk. Right. Now, um, it's, it's, let, let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about this, you know, let's talk about this Jesus, right? 
And one of the things that they, they stress, in fact, I was actually playing golf about a year and a half ago, and I got paired up with a member of one of those churches. And uh, so he's telling me about, about, his, about his church and, and, and whatever. And his whole point was, well, um, well how, how many Presbyterians are there then? Uh, there's only one in our, in our movement. We're, we're one. We're unified. And, and I, I don't usually use this illustration with, with them because it can be taken in an offensive way and I don't mean it to be, so I have to be careful with that. Um, but the illustration would be this. Suppose you're the devil, as, not something that you want to actually do, but just work with me for a moment. Um, and, and the devil's sitting up there you know, and he's looking down and he sees a group of, of 100 people and, and, and uh, um, they're, they're, they, they think they're doing God's will, but they're not. And, and they really believe they've got everything together, but, but they don't. If you're the devil, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to leave them alone. If you've got another group over here of 100 people, and they really are doing the Lord's will, and they really do have everything together, you're going to do everything you can to wreak havoc and destruction and chaos amongst them. You see, I don't know that proving the unity of, of your church or of your denomination or of your organization or of your, of your religion actually necessarily proves your argument. It, it may not. It may mean that the devil's leaving you alone. And I think we have to recognize the fact that, you know, there's nothing we can do, folks, about the 40,000 denominations. It, it, it is what it is. Um, we're not going to bring Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants all together and have this one great church, as I said earlier, based on the Harvard professor's you know, uh, idea, that if we just pull our resources, that's not going to happen. We're, we're way beyond that. But we still need to figure out how to maintain unity with what we have, with ourselves, and sacrifice. We may not agree with Catholics, with Baptists, may not agree with the megachurch down the road, or the Mennonites, or anybody else. But we have to be careful to recognize that there's still brothers and sisters in Christ, potentially within those churches. Not all Presbyterians are Christians, but neither are all Baptists, or all Catholics, or whatever. Say it again, then this unity doesn't prove Christianity false. It just shows that Christians have a hard time being faithful, that we too are sinners, and also that we have an enemy who is making great efforts to reap destruction amongst us. All right, I said at the beginning, I think there's two things that we can learn from this particular passage in the book of Acts. The first is unity. The second is holiness. The story in Acts chapter 2 is the reversal of Babel. In Babel, they were one language and trying to build a, ta- a, te- a, a tabernacle, a temple, a city up to the heavens where they could ultimately be, bring God down to their level and become gods themselves. In Acts, God is building one people and uniting the various diverse, of, diverse languages into one people in the one temple presence of God. So Acts chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through, through chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 to uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Excuse me. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends... Let us purify for ourselves, excuse me, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Note chapter 7, verse 1. Sometimes these chapter breaks are, are, can be a, a, a problem a little bit. 
The word therefore, Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, meaning in light of the fact that we are the temple of God, in light of the fact that God dwells among us, therefore, since we have these promises, let's purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. As we go through the book of Acts, we're going to ask the question, what is the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is, I believe, worship and mission. We come together as a worshiping community and then go out on mission. Everything we do is worship and everything we do is mission. We don't separate the two as though we're only doing worship now and not mission. No, we're doing worship and mission now. The worship is the worship of the one God. The mission is to make that one God known. And we do that now and outside the walls at all times. But we can do this so much more effectively and efficiently if we are one. By reorienting our thoughts and our lives. Asking God to help us to see others the way He sees them. We can be a better bridge towards unity. As we go to prayer, let's just ask ourselves the question, in what ways have we struggled with creating an environment of unity? And let's pray that the Lord would help make us one, that we can be the beginning, at least, of bringing unity to the larger body of Christ, both in Bakersfield and around the world. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. It's not because of our education. It's not because of our wealth. It's not because of our status, our power, our good looks, our hard work, or anything else that we have become children of God. As the book of Titus says, it's not because of righteous things we have done, but because of your mercy. And so, Lord, help us to humbly enter into that reality, that presence of truth, that we are members of the body of Christ. And we struggle because we see things that we really can't compromise on, the gospel, the core of the gospel, the proclamation of Jesus as Lord, his life, death, and resurrection for our salvation, the oneness of God, the triuneness of God. We we see these things, the, the fundamental course of Scripture, And yet we've allowed sometimes to to add to that list perhaps things that we probably shouldn't add. Some things that we may not agree with, adult baptism versus infant baptism. But that doesn't bar one of us or the other from being members of the body of Christ. We might disagree and have strong differences of opinion. We may not even be able to worship at the same church, but we can still be members of the same body and be unified. And help us to encourage that unity in our conversations, in our dialogue. Even if we don't fully agree with other churches or denominations, help us not to speak down about them towards others because those others are often just end up more and more confused. As the man I met with recently who didn't know what church to attend because the Yellow Pages had too many of them. And it took him many, many years to finally go to church. Lord, may we, may we help, help the gospel flourish. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for our differences because that's who we are and who you've made us to be. And we don't mean in our unity that we can't have differences. We are different. We have different gifts, different talents, different callings. Yet we remain one in the body of Christ. We thank you for that. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. 
You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.